Well, as always, I'm going to exhort you to keep your Bibles open in front of you, and I imagine that a few of them closed during the prayer time, so please do reopen them to Philippians chapter 4, which will, of course, be our focus for this sermon together. There will be a number of cross-references that I mentioned this morning, so please do have your Bibles there. Be ready and eager to check what I am proclaiming against the standard of God's Word to make sure that what is being proclaimed, as always, is faithful to God's own holy scriptures. As Andrew mentioned earlier, today is the final message in our study on Philippians, a study that we have indeed looked at through the lens of joy. And as we have read and taught through Philippians, I trust that you have seen the pervasive language of rejoicing finding joy and hope in Christ. This lens has really helped to shape our thinking as we've worked throughout this epistle. And of course, there are many ways that we could approach a book like Philippians, but joy has certainly been a highlight for me. Unsurprisingly, as we come to this final message, this last chapter, we again see a great deal of joy woven into Paul's words. And in particular, this morning, there's a focus on joy in finances, particularly in generosity, and as well as joy in our financial circumstances, be they those of abundance or those of need. And I'm aware that money is, of course, one of those topics that makes people a little uncomfortable. And if that's you this morning... Well, can I suggest that you're the exact kind of person who needs to hear, think, and put into practice what we will hear today. As such, it's been my prayer throughout preparing this message that we all might have ears to hear the wonderful truths contained in these verses, that we might rightly think about ourselves and our financial circumstance, and that rather than focusing on what can be a tempting idol of money, we find true contentment in Christ. My prayer has been that we will not only hear these words, but put them into practice in how we live and how we give as God's people. So brothers and sisters, let's dig into God's word now. And as we come to this section of Philippians, I want you to notice firstly that Paul is bringing this book full circle. What I mean by that is that when he commenced the book back in chapter 1, he outlined his concern for the Philippians. Not concerned that they were going astray, but his genuine love and desire to see them go on and on in their faith. He talked about how they were constantly on his mind, how they were firmly in his prayers, and that in all circumstance he desired their best in Christ. He was willing to forego death and closeness with Christ himself for the sake of the Philippian church. That is how much he was concerned for their well-being. Throughout the center of the book, he looked at the Philippians' concern for one another. How were they to love one another? How were they to be humble and consider each other more important than themselves? How were they to have one mind, Christ's mind, as they had concern for one another. 
And now as he wraps up this letter, he speaks and reflects about the Philippians' concern for him. He brings us all the way round. He reflects here on their generosity in sending him not only the messenger Epaphroditus, not only the encouragement of how well the church is doing, but also in their sending of a gift, a generous financial gift given to Paul to aid him in his gospel work. And it's here that we see first that there should be great joy in generosity. And if you have your sermon outline handy, you'll see that that is the first point made in bold. Joy in generosity. Let's look together at verse 10. Paul writes, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. I'm going to read that again. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. This sounds slightly backhanded if you read it in isolation, doesn't it? It's what some would call a a complisult. It's a compliment insult merged into one thing. Because there's two dangers in the way we can interpret this. One is Paul could be saying, it's about time you remembered me. And the other is, I'm so joyful that you gave me money. So there's no confusion as to Paul's motivation, what he does in the following verses is dispel both of those possible misunderstandings. The first is very swiftly addressed. He says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. See here, friends, Paul is not accusing the Philippians of somehow forgetting him and suddenly recalling, oh, there's Paul, we should help him. No, he knows that just as he longed to be with them, that he urged to join them once more, so they longed for him. They were eager to support him in his gospel ministry, but they were unable to do so. Some obstacle had blocked their path, and now it has been lifted. We're not told exactly what that obstacle was. Perhaps it was the danger of visiting an environment hostile to the gospel. Perhaps it was an inability to access Paul while he was under arrest or in prison. Whatever the case, that has now gone and immediately the Philippians have expressed their long-held concern in sending Epaphroditus and a financial gift. Now friends, this is not the main point here. But I think it's a pertinent question for us now and indeed it picks up on the challenge that Andrew laid in his farewell speech. Our way to serve the gospel has recently been hindered through lockdowns and restrictions, through absences from one another. There has been an inability for many to serve as they normally would. There has been an incapacity to contribute as we normally would. And now those obstacles are lifting. As of next Wednesday, they should lift all the more. And the question that rings in my ears, at least, is will we, like the Philippians, eagerly resume our service? Will we seize the opportunity just as they did when it was afforded to them? Paul has dispelled the first misunderstanding. The second misunderstanding that 
could be found in Paul's words, I rejoice greatly that at last you renewed your concern for me, is that Paul is simply joyful because he's come into some money. And Paul is going to give us two reasons why that is not the case. One of them is outlined in verses 11 through 13, and the other found in verses 14 through to 19. And I'm actually going to look at the second one first and then circle back to the first one. Because I want to end this message by bringing clarity to an often misused verse. But for now, please look again to verse 14, and I'm going to read it again for us. Paul writes, Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, Not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Paul dispels the idea that he is simply joyful because he has money by focusing on the Philippians themselves and their circumstance. Look at how Paul describes the relationship. You have shared in my troubles or you have joined in my hardships. In giving to support Paul's ministry, to encourage Paul, the Philippians have partnered with him. And of course, that partnership language has been prevalent throughout the book of Philippians. Paul says, even when I was elsewhere in other churches, you guys still pitched in. You still partnered with me and supported me financially in my gospel work. So great did the Philippians esteem the gospel ministry, that they were willing to forego their own comfort, their own financial security. They were willing to give generously to support the work that Paul had undertaken. So great is their joy in generosity that Paul will use them as an example to other churches. And he does that in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. If you've got your Bibles, feel free to flick across to 2 Corinthians 8. I'm going to read just five verses from the beginning. This is Paul using the Philippians, the church in Macedonia, as an example to rebuke and encourage other churches. He writes to Corinth, And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches, that's the Philippians, in the midst of a very severe trial. Their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord. And then by the will of God also to us. Look at that, friends, as an example of genuine, joyful generosity. It was not 
forced or coerced. If anything, Paul tried to stop them from giving so generously, knowing what circumstance that would bring upon their already impoverished selves. But we're told that their joy in knowing God welled up within the church and it overflowed in not only joy, but generous support of Paul and the gospel work. That's why Paul can use them as an example to others. That's why Paul can hold them aloft as an example to all Christians of how to live generously with whatever God has given you. When declaring that God loves a cheerful giver, just a little later in the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul no doubt has the Philippian church in mind. They truly found joy in giving. Why? Well, Paul says the answer there in 2 Corinthians 8.5. They had given themselves fully to the Lord. And then by the will of God, they gave to Paul also. So full of the love and joy and knowledge and life of Christ that Paul has been encouraging the Philippians to know. So full of all those things are they as a church and as people that they can give freely, eagerly, joyfully. And having been denied the opportunity to do so for some time, Paul rejoices when Epaphroditus comes. As soon as Epaphroditus has the way open for him to come, he is there with more joyful generosity, willingly, eagerly partnering with Paul. And as their joy increases, as their generosity increases, so Paul's joy increases, as his gospel work also increases. And that is one reason why Paul can truly say, I rejoice greatly. In the Lord, that at last you renewed your concern for me. Why? Not because he's got money, but because he can see God working in the Philippians. They're still on track. They're powering down the narrow road. It's evident in the way they live and the way they give and the way they love. They're joyful, generous, gospel-focused Christians. And when they send their gift, Paul sees that and he rejoices greatly. Because he knows that God is still working in them. Paul began his letter with that sentiment. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with what? With joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. Paul can see Christ at work bringing the Philippian church to its complete and final state as they continue to joyfully give. These gifts, says Paul, are truly a credit, not to Paul's bank account, but to the Philippians' Christ-like character. And so Paul can describe their gifts as a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And despite having given out of their own worldly poverty, Paul can go on confidently saying, My God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Not saying that their finances will be renewed, 
that what they are giving financially will somehow come back tenfold, but rather that in their joyful generosity, in their Christian witness, God will sustain them with the spiritual riches, the true heavenly riches that we should all be longing for and storing up. Friends, the Philippians were joyful in generosity. And Paul was joyful that their generosity proved their richness in Christ. Reason one why Paul is not simply happy to have money is because he looks at the Philippians' circumstances. That's one reason not to misunderstand him. The second reason is because Paul looks at his own circumstances. That's found in verse 11 through 13, but I'm going to take us back to verse 10 once more. We're in Philippians 4, reading from verse 10. Paul said, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Friends, the second reason not to misunderstand Paul's motivation when he sees the Philippians' generosity is because he can confidently say he is content whatever the circumstance. He takes pains to make this clear. Three times he highlights both ends of the spectrum there. He knows what it is to have abundance and he knows what it is to be in need. He knows what it is to be well fed and he knows what it is to go hungry. Paul knows what it is to have plenty and he knows what it is to want And Paul says, knowing all of these things, whatever may come, I can be content. And more than content, the epistle to the Philippians would say Paul is in fact joyful, whatever comes. So what then is the key to such contentment? How can we know it for ourselves and how can we too be content whatever the circumstances we find ourselves in? Well, look at Paul's words as he describes it to the Philippian church. He says, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. As a preacher, it's fairly frustrating when someone writes something like that. He has not exposed the secret clearly for us. He simply says he has learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. And whilst it might be a little unhelpful that he hasn't laid it out step by step for us today, there is enough here to work with, enough to encourage us to pursue that secret for ourselves. Firstly, let me point out that it is a secret that is learned and not given. It is learned and not given. Twice Paul used that language in these verses. 
He has learned how to be content in all circumstances and he has learned the secret of being content in any situation. Friends, what we need to see here is that learning and growing is an integral part of the Christian life. The Christian life is one that is marked by ongoing learning as we seek to follow God. God, of course, is infinite. We will be learning about him forever. Specifically, Scripture reminds us that as we learn, we grow in knowledge of truth, striving, working to understand. We don't simply learn by osmosis or by virtue of being a Christian. When you come to that point of confessing your rebellion against God and of turning to Christ in repentance, casting yourself on his good grace by faith, He doesn't simply implant in you all of the knowledge that comes with being Christian. He doesn't simply inject in you the secret of being content. He instructs us to go on in our faith, learning and growing. Even in the book of Philippians, Paul has hinted at that. Back in chapter 3, verse 9, he said, Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Paul has already instructed the Philippians numerous times that they must be continuing to learn, to seek after the knowledge of God, to seek after the peace of God, which of course would lead to contentment. But notice there in 3.9 what Paul says about this knowledge. It must not simply be learned, but put into practice. Knowing truth is useful only when we live it out. It's a common teaching in our New Testament. James instructs us not simply to be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. Paul cautions Timothy that people will arise who love to seek after knowledge, but never bring it into their lives. The example that sits before us today is ourselves. Do you know, friends, that God loves a cheerful giver? If you've been a Christian for any length of time, I'm sure you've heard that taught. Do you know that the gospel ministry should be supported? Do you know that Christ sustains his people in all circumstance? These are things that we can and should know. The question that rings out is, do you put it into practice? Do you do it? Do you give generously, regardless of your worldly circumstance? Do you give cheerfully and joyfully as the Philippians did? The shortfall in our church's budget every year that I've been here would suggest that we're not all doing that. There is a difference between knowledge and putting knowledge into practice. If we are to truly learn the secret of contentment, We must practice what we learn of Christ. The third point I think that we can draw quite clearly from here is that true contentment comes through Christ. There in verse 13, that sadly misapplied scripture that gets used as a banner to say that we can do anything we want in this life, 
Paul, in this context of financial supply, says, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. I can survive in times of want. I can navigate times of plenty. I can do it all through Christ who gives me strength. It's all, says Paul, through him through His grace in our lives. That is how we can be content in any circumstance. And it's not just here that that is said. In Ephesians 6.10, Paul instructs the church at Ephesus to be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. He understands that the spiritual battle is one of dependence on the strength of God. When writing to Timothy, Paul says much the same in 1 Timothy 1.12. He says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Paul understands that the gospel work can only be undertaken in the strength that Christ provides. He urges Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.1, You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Cast yourself on to Christ's goodness, he says. And in 2 Timothy 4.17, speaking of times of trial and hardship, Paul says, But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed. Friends, we need to see here that the strength to do anything for Christ comes from Christ. The strength to do things for Christ comes from Christ. Paul doesn't simply charge out on his own. He doesn't become content on his own. No, he depends on Christ and the strength that Christ provides. The fourth point, though, is that we also work in tandem with Christ's Spirit. Paul has already encouraged the Philippians, and I know we've referenced it a number of times, to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because God is the one who works in them. Paul understands that tension that it is God who is at work, just as we work with and for God. And even though Christ gives us the strength to be content, Paul still knows that he participates in that process. Look at the language he uses of himself. I can. I am. I have learned. Paul has contributed to this process. He has been active alongside Christ's divine activity. In fact, the word that he uses for content can equally be translated as self-control. We see that in Galatians where one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. God's spiritual gift to us is our control of ourselves. Do you see how the two work together? Christians are not passive people. We do not lay around expecting to grow in grace. We do not laze about expecting to conquer sin. We do not face financial hardship or windfall and expect to be content. No, we work in step with the Spirit in all circumstances, with Christ's own Spirit, 
so that as he strengthens us, we can live in obedience to his instruction. And friends, I want to note here one final danger. And that is the temptation to see this as how to live contently in times of poverty only. Paul very specifically highlights both need and abundance. He does it three times so that we don't miss it. Paul equally wants you to see how to be content in times of abundance. And it's the same warning, I think. Contentment, true contentment, must come from knowing Christ, from finding joy in Him, and from walking and working in step with His Spirit. If you are content here and now in your financial circumstance simply because you know it's secure, you have solid investments, money in the bank, some great inheritance that has come your way, If you are content only because you have that financial security, Paul says you've missed the point and you're equally in danger. Your contentment must come from knowing Christ and finding joy in Him. And we're warned about the danger of money perhaps more than anything else in our New Testament. The parable of the rich ruler who could not turn from finance to follow Christ the caution of the idolatry of money and the warning that the love of money is the root of all evil, we're consistently cautioned to turn from earthly things and to look to heavenly riches. We're asked, what does a man gain if he inherits the whole earth and forfeits his soul? Friends, true contentment, Paul says, is found in Christ alone. Whether you are in a season of abundance or a season of desperate need, Paul says your contentment must be found in Christ. We must work hard to know him, to learn that secret and to put it into practice so that we, like Paul, can be joyful, not when people give us money, but when we see others being generous, when we see our church using its financial resources for the glory of God, when we give week by week or to some special project eagerly, whether we have an abundance or a lack, because we know that the gospel message is worth it. Friends, I think the greatest guarding against discontentment in financial circumstance, whether you are in abundance or need, Paul says, is a generous spirit. A spirit that is more concerned with knowing Christ and proclaiming his gospel than it is with the material things of this world. Joy in generosity. That's what Paul would have us not simply learn, but put into practice today. Let me pray, brothers and sisters, that we would indeed be a church joyous in our generosity. Let's pray.
our Lord and Heavenly Father. As we sit under your word today, it is a message that strikes straight to the heart of so many. We know, Lord, that there are those among us who are going through seasons of abundance. There are those among us in seasons of desperate need and want. And we pray this morning, Lord, that whatever our circumstance may be, that you would, by your Spirit, be growing us, teaching us, and then enabling us to put into practice what you would have us do. Lord, I ask that NBC, a church that you have blessed richly with finances, that we would become known for our generosity, for our eager giving, for our support of gospel ministries near and far and within. Lord, we pray that you would keep us from the idol of money, that you would always turn our attention to the contentment that can be found only in knowing Christ. Help us to learn that secret, Lord. Help us to live it as Paul did. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our music team is...